Welcome to Inside Divorce. My name is Hindel Grossman, the owner of a law firm called Grossman & Associates LTD located in Newton and Nantucket, Massachusetts. Hello, my name is Hindel Grossman and welcome to Inside Divorce. Today I'm sitting with Shane Hunter, who is a patent attorney, and we're going to talk about different kinds of intellectual property and how that relates to divorce. And so good morning, Shane. Good morning, Hindel. Thank you for having me on. My pleasure. First, I think our um, listeners would like to hear a little more about who you are. Uh, so as you said, my name is Shane Hunter. I'm the co-founder of Hunter Clark Intellectual Property Law Firm. I've been practicing law for 23 years. And about eight years ago, I opened a firm with a good friend of mine, an excellent patent attorney, TJ Clark, fulfilling kind of a dream I've had since I was in high school of having my own business. Entrepreneur, you are, huh? Uh, I always thought that's what I wanted to do back in high school when I was working fast food. I said, people <laughs> got to eat and people got to die. So I thought I wanted to own a fast food place or, or a funeral home. But oh, really? uh, as it turned out, I was too nerdy and I went the side of being an engineer and then went to law school. So you probably made a good choice. Yeah, I think so. Well, I don't know. People do like fast food, <laughs> people do die from fast food. Potentially, yes. So you now live in Massachusetts and practice law in Massachusetts, but you formerly practice law in California, is that right? Correct. I'm licensed in California and Massachusetts. I've lived in both places 15 years plus each. Mm -hmm. Spent half my time in cold weather, half in warm weather. Well, lucky you. Well, you're in the colder weather now, unfortunately. Right? In here for good, I think. Okay, good. Well, let's get started on the topic of um, intellectual property. First of all, what is intellectual property? So intellectual property is... Trademarks, copyrights, and patents. It's property that you can't hold and touch, but it's everything intellectual. So it's ideas for patents, it's works of authorship for copyrights, and it's logos or brands or sayings for trademarks. Okay. And are these um, things that can be owned? Absolutely. Uh, so from what I understand, you know, in divorce law, the primary concerns are who owns what and how much is it worth. Uh, you can certainly own all three types of intellectual property. And in 23 years of doing intellectual property law, I've looked at numerous IP portfolios and 100% of them have ownership problems. Mm -hmm. So it creates an issue if you're getting divorced as to who owns what. So they all have some kind of ownership problem that I've seen. Yeah. A lot of them are very formalistic or technicalities that can be fixed. But some of them are, are very big, and companies think they own intellectual property that one of their employees created, and it turns out the employee owns them, owns the intellectual property, yeah. and therefore the spouse can own an interest in that intellectual property. All right. So let's talk about, um, you said intellectual property includes trademarks, copyrights, and patents, right? Correct. Those three things. Let's talk about how to own intellectual property, and is it different from each of these three? Trademarks are quite a bit different from the copyrights and patents as far as ownership. So in trademarks, if somebody comes up with a brand name like Xerox or Apple, yeah. the person that comes up with that idea or that logo or that phrase is not the owner, typically. It's whoever or whatever entity uses that. So it's the actual company Apple or the company Xerox owns that trademark. Yeah because you have to use it in commerce in order to actually assert rights to it. Own, yeah, assert rights or obtain rights in that trademark. Okay. With copyright and patents, it's really the person that comes up with it. So if it's an author, whoever puts fingers to keyboard and creates the text, that person is the owner. Yeah. It can be automatically assigned to somebody else. If you're getting a work for hire, somebody hires you to write the book or 
an article or make a sculpture or a painting, et cetera, that other entity may own it right away if they're hiring you for it. Otherwise, you need to assign your rights over to it. Otherwise, the person that created that, that author is the owner. And the same is true with patents. So if somebody comes up with an idea or a way to implement an idea through software or some biotech innovation, yeah. that inventor is the owner absent some other agreement. So there may be an employment agreement ahead of time that automatically assigns, but it's better as companies to both have an, an employment agreement and have the inventor specifically sign over their rights once the invention is created. Absent that, you're, and that's what happens a lot of times when I said there's ownership problems, is companies, especially startup companies, don't have assigned employment agreements set up. So there's not an automatic assignment and they are forgetful or lazy and they don't get the inventor to sign over the rights. Yeah. And so now the owner, the inventor is still the owner. The employee is still the owner, not the company in many instances. And therefore the spouse of that inventor can have rights in that invention and can potentially cause real problems for a company. Wow. All right, so let's go back to trademark for a minute. That work for hire expression always mystifies me. So if I hire someone to do a sculpture of me, let's say, do I own the sculpture or does the person who actually creates the sculpture own it? Usually it's if, if you're hiring that person to do that specifically, there's going to be kind of an implicit ownership that you will own it. Okay. Uh, but a lot of times the, the photographers, for example, they'll take pictures, but the photographer retains those rights. Right. It's much better if you have a specific agreement saying that I'm hiring you to do this, but anything you create is actually mine, not yours. Mm. Uh, because otherwise, the, a lot of times the photographers are a great example. They'll retain the rights in those photographs. You'll see like news reporters or photographers for news magazines, et cetera, yeah. and they'll, they'll still own the rights in the photos the they take for newsworthy stories. Even if they're working for even though they're a working magazine. for a magazine or CNN or USA Today, et cetera, the the owner uh, is still the photographer in many instances. Oh, I see. You know, my daughter was married in November, and I'm thinking about the wedding photos and who owns those. So the, that photographer actually, we purchased all of the 800 photographs. But I know most wedding photographers retain rights in the photos, and you buy them one by one. Right, and they'll say, uh, yeah, they'll give you several hundred to look at yeah. and say, which ones do you want to buy? But they own the rights in all of them, yes. which is a little bit uh, odd to me. It seems odd to me, but they retain the rights in all those photos. Yeah. And then you just buy copies of them. Yes. Yes, I see the distinction in the, in the uh, everyday application of wedding photos. All right, so that's interesting about trademarks. Oh, that was actually copyrights. Oh, copyrights, I'm yep. sorry. Yep, copyrights. The, the photograph example and... Uh, sculpture example to work for hire. But I guess the whole concept of patents and, and employment. So someone's working, the engineer is working for Raytheon, I would say, and creates something that's patentable while employed by a company. So is there an automatic assumption that it belongs to the company? Well, a lot of that depends on individual state law. Yeah. It varies state to state. Yeah. While inventorship is a federal law concept, yeah. ownership of the intellectual property is a state law concept. So it can change state to state, but then a lot of times there is a presumption that if you are, in your example, an engineer, so you're expected to be someone that's creating things and, right. and coming up with new ideas and possibly inventing, much more likely that the company could get 
ownership of that invention because there's an implied kind of work for hire, like I said, even though that's not really a patent concept, but you can say your job was specifically for this, therefore there's an implicit assignment, the ownership goes to the company. But now if you're a marketing person or you work in the mail room, and that's not really your job is uh -huh. to invent. Now, if somebody comes up with something, if somebody in the mailroom had come up with post-it notes, okay, now <laughs> does the company yeah. own post-it notes? Uh, so that's why companies, once you get beyond the startup phase, and I think a lot of the high-tech startups do this immediately as they'll have employment agreements that automatically assign any inventions to the company. And this will apply no matter what your job is, yeah. because in the past, a lot of companies would only do it for the engineers or the people that were expected to invent. But now people do it more blanket. So it's anybody that comes up with anything is going to be, <laughs> be, owned, by the it's going to be owned by the company. Exactly. But it's wise, I think, to do belt and suspenders that even though you have that employment agreement that automatically assigns, once you come up with a specific invention and the company is spending the money to hire a patent attorney like myself and file for a, a patent, yeah. they specifically assign that particular invention to the company. And so there's a belt and suspenders there and large companies do this all the time. Qualcomm has a very good employment agreement that automatically assigns, but every individual invention that comes mm -hmm. along, they have the inventor specifically sign another assignment to the company. In addition to pursuing the patent through the US Patent and Trademark Office and putting it in the name of the company, I presume. Correct. Okay. So it's kind of three parts, it sounds like. The employment agreement assigns any creation by that employee while employed by that employer automatically becomes owned by that employer. That's the first step. Right. Two is some document which assigns rights above and beyond the employment agreement. It's just when the invention is created, they'll once you file the patent application, you'll get assigned a serial number and then you'll fill out another piece of paper that's just a formal assignment that'll have that serial number, the title of the patent application, and you specifically assign that to the company. Oh, okay. How does uh, a creator, inventor, protect, or the employer, protect ownership of a patent? That's where you come in as a patent lawyer. Right. It's to make sure that have that employment agreement, have that specific assignment done afterwards, and make sure it's correct. Because a lot of times when I said that there's problems that are correctable, they make little mistakes like typographical errors and things. And so the ownership really is to the company. Yeah. But in the patent office, they don't see it, but you can fix it. The bigger issue is if you don't have those, those, uh, that paperwork, that employment agreement or the specific assignment in place, now it goes to the inventor. The inventor is assumed to be the owner, absent these other specific agreements in writing. Yeah. And... When it comes to a divorce issue, is the in, you can say, well, was that invention created during the marriage? Yeah. Because if somebody did a lot of activity before the marriage, had the patent application on file, et cetera, and then they get married and a month later the patent issues, that is most likely, you know, 99% sure is going to be the property of the individual mm -hmm. spouse, not the not the both spouses in the marriage. Potentially is a premarital asset. Exactly. Potentially, yeah. It's really a matter of what was the activity of developing the invention? When was it done? Was it done before the marriage, after the marriage, during the marriage? And of course, then if there's some before or some after and some during, then there's going to be a dispute over, yeah, okay, is there some split of the rights yeah. or et cetera? 
Well, that's another benefit of the patent application process. There's a date by which you know something's filed, so you can actually put a marker on it. Correct. If you, to, so when when it was created, or when someone took the steps actually to protect it. As right. An if you get a patent issued a month after the marriage, the patent application would have been filed years before. Yeah. So it's going to be a premarital asset. Yeah. So patents are an asset, potentially an asset of the marriage. It's kind of we're transitioning now into if it's an asset of the marriage, we have to identify it because whether it's owned by the employer or the employee, and the employee's the one one of the persons getting divorced. So the asset will have to be identified, the patent that is, or the uh, copyright. Or right, or trademark, or maybe it's a patent application that's still pending, it hasn't issued as a patent yet. Right. right. So it would have to be identified as an asset or a potential asset if the application is still pending. Right. And that can create interesting issues right there. I mean, there was a case where a company got sued and the inventor had been divorced. And so the defendant in the lawsuit went mm -hmm. to the spouse, the ex-spouse of the inventor, yeah. and said, I'll pay you X amount of dollars. You yeah. give me your rights to it. Yeah. And then they went back to the plaintiff and said, okay, we now own the patent and we are choosing not to sue because every owner uh, and initially the inventors have a, it's kind of an odd thing, but you can have multiple inventors having a hundred percent rights. So any one inventor can assign or license uh, without the approval of the other inventors. So this inventor could go back in and say, I choose, I'm, I'm choosing not to sue or I give, I'm giving myself now the owner of this uh, license so you, you can't sue me. Now, they ended up losing that on a technicality because the divorce had already been complete yeah. and the ex-spouse had not listed the patent as a, as a marital asset. Mm -hmm. But you can see if the divorce hadn't been complete, they might have won that. So just to recount the facts of that case, because it's a really interesting case that you brought to my attention. So, you know, company X sues company Y for patent infringement. Right. Company Y, who's the defendant in that case, says, aha, I'm going to get around this by going to the spouse of the inventor and acquiring that spouse's half interest, which would kind of nullify the merits of the case by company X that's suing for infringement. Exactly. Because then company Y is an owner. Right. Right? Is right. It, and is you it could owner see of that? company Y could go to the ex-spouse and say, I'll give you $10,000. Yeah. And the potential liability from a patent lawsuit can be in the millions. It all depends on how much product is being sold, et cetera. So they could have... Bought their way out really inexpensively. Absolutely. Yeah. And so you can see as a company that's a patent holder, especially if you have employees that are in community property states where it's assumed that uh, everything is, is shared like that, then you can have a real problem because in some... There's debate whether in community property states, if the assignment that you have an employment agreement or even a specific assignment actually nullifies the spouse's rights to it because you can say, well, some states say that you cannot unilaterally dispose of yeah. community property. Yeah. Some states say, though, that that only applies to real property. And yeah. so intangible property like intellectual property wouldn't count. Oh. But it's unsettled. The states are not unified on this opinion, huh? On that right. would be approach. But it's a very interesting case you brought up. And what also is so interesting is that one person who participates in the creation of a patent can be assert 100% rights, even though they only exactly. have a small interest in it. You could have 10 inventors. Yeah. One person did very little, but is still an inventor. Yeah. That person 
uh, is separated from their spouse yeah. and the company sues, but turns out didn't resolve this ownership issue. The defendant goes after the spouse that's a separated spouse. Now there's no issue about, oh, you, know, you didn't list it as a marital asset in the separation or divorce agreement. Pays some small amount of money to avoid a very huge liability. Yeah. That must be very confusing. Who has the, you know, each one of the 10 people who potentially invent something can assert 100% ownership? Right. If they haven't assigned it over to the company and there's not the one owner, yeah. then they can each do it. Yeah. And so somebody could license out the entire patent for $10 when somebody else thought there should be millions at stake. So it's it's an odd situation, maybe. It doesn't seem right, but that's the way it is. There must be litigation over that. Oh, and people argue over ownership and whether you should have yeah. been able to do that. And was there a breach of fiduciary duty between co-owners of a business that are also co-inventors, et cetera? Absolutely. I see. Very interesting. All right, so we're talking about asserting rights, owning rights to intellectual property. So the next phase of it, at least in my world of divorcing, is to identify assets and then to value assets. So how do, how right. do you go about valuing intellectual property? Valuing IP can be very difficult because if, for example, on trademarks, now you look at a brand, what's the value of the brand? It's a very, you know, because it's intangible, it's how do you put a dollar amount on that? Are people buying Coke because it tastes good or because the, the name or they associate the name with the taste, et cetera. And you go to another company, a smaller company like Leslie's Pool Supply. Okay, if you sold that, how much value is just in retaining the name? People are gonna rely on that name for a certain level of service, but how do you value that? It gets very complicated and very tricky. And it's more of an art than a science, I think, a lot of times. There are companies out there that will do this. It's much easier if there's a product being sold. And this is usually the case when it gets into litigation. Yeah. And the way companies will try to value things is they'll have a, a hypothetical license negotiation saying, okay, you have this product, let's see what your profit margins are, let's see what the typical license rate is in this industry, maybe it's 3%, and then you can apply that 3%, is it to the total value, is it just to the profit, et cetera. And then they'll look at what's the life cycle, what's the expected life and the market growth or decline, and there's still a lot of variables. When you get into litigation on patents, uh, you know, hire experts that cost tens of thousands of dollars to try to come up with the number yeah. to say what, what it's worth. Yeah. And when you're divorcing, of course, you want to, most people, I think, want to have a nice clean break and just have a lump sum payment. Yeah. But it's very difficult because if there's the product is very new or the, the patent still has 15 years of life on it, yeah. how do you estimate what that life is, or maybe it's millions and you don't want to pay a lump sum now, so now you're going to pay the royalties, and there's been dispute over saying, well, royalties are too ambiguous, they're too speculative, you should known those, but courts have come back and said, well, the amount of the royalties is speculative, the rights to the royalties is not, therefore you get whatever it is, they decide what the split is, say 50-50, and say from exactly here, it, yeah. exactly, so when you get it, now you have to pay, and then it it's unfortunate maybe that you have to keep going for some number of years after the divorce, but it's, in my mind, the most equitable solution. I see. Are royalties the money that's generated from licensing intellectual property? Correct. So you can license your patent or license a copyright to those photos, et cetera. You can use those for advertising, et cetera. And then every time you use it, a certain percentage comes back to the owner, and that's the royalty amount. I see. In a divorce, should... Assuming that the person who owns the patent or intellectual property 
admits to owning it, how does that get divided? It gets in a divorce. Well, now that you'll get into that whole debate of how much of it was created during the marriage. If there was, if it was all during the marriage, then I would think it would be split in community property states. Let's assume 50-50 in non-community property states, then it's, it would go along with whatever ownership I think applies to the rest of the, uh, the rest of the property, real or, or otherwise. And then you would divide it as best you can at, uh, according to that percentage. Okay, so let's, for the sake of this example, say 50-50. Mm-hmm. So can one spouse assign, you know, with a, doc, with a document, assign their 50% right to that patent to the other spouse? Absolutely. Right. But it can you, go either way. The, right. right. The inventor can give up their rights to Absolutely. the non-inventor. So you, you, right. You can just say, okay, it's yours. I don't, I don't want to pursue this anymore. I'll, I'll turn this over to you. And then you could, in the negotiations for the divorce, you could be saying, well, I think it's, you know, you're going to have two different valuations probably of the two different spouses. And then maybe one spouse wants to use the invention, market a product that the other spouse doesn't want to. Uh, but absolutely, you could uh, assign your rights to the other one and be done with it and yeah. say, here it is. I'm either going to collect a percentage of future royalties or I'll take a lump sum payment right now and, and we're done. Interesting. It's like when you talked about real property before, you mean real estate. So I'm just saying it's different. Real estate is obviously tangible and uh, intellectual property is, is not, but it's, the process is the same. Right. And I... Uh, my understanding in, in uh, divorce is, you know, you have a real property like a house or land, and, you, and then there's the debate of do you force one spouse to sell it if one spouse wants to retain yeah. that uh, and live in the house. Now do they have to pay or only pay when they sell? You could have the same kind of issues with the intellectual property. Is you're going to use this? Well, do you take an ongoing royalty or do you have to pay me an upfront now? Do you want to have, retain the rights to? to monetize this, yeah. and you can have the same, the same debates with intellectual property as, as with any other property. Is there a market for selling intellectual property? Absolutely. Right? There are several companies that spawned probably out of the dot-com boom back about 20 years ago where uh, they decided, I will have a business model of just buying patents and licensing them or suing people. And so you can go to a company like that, it's called a non-practicing entity because they don't actually make the product or provide the service. So they're not practicing the invention. But a lot of companies were mad about this because they made it so that the plaintiff, now the patent owner being the plaintiff in a lawsuit was judgment proof because you couldn't counter sue them for anything because they didn't make anything. But it was good in a lot of respects because small inventors had a very hard time enforcing their patents because big companies could just say, well, what are you going to do about it? A small yeah. inventor couldn't afford to sue. Yeah. So now they could sell or they would. what they would do is they would turn over their rights for a certain percentage of the recovery. And now this holding company or a non-practicing entity could go out and collect the money for the yeah. uh, invention. And then they would give a percentage back to the inventor. A lot of times they were, these companies were giving 50%, uh-huh. not just some trivial amount. Uh-huh. So it made it so small inventors could actually realize the benefit of their contribution to society, which I think is a great thing. So uh, whereas a lot of big companies didn't like the non-practicing entities, I I think there was some good that came of them. In addition, there are some marketplaces where you can put your patent out on the internet and say, here, I have this. How much will somebody pay me for it? Well, that's interesting. That's very good to know. Then the valuation issue comes up. 
Right. I mean, valuing a patent or any intellectual property, especially a patent, can be very difficult yeah. because if there is a product being sold currently, maybe, but there's still a lot of conjecture. Is this going to be a fad? Is it going to go away in two years and I have 15 years left on my patent? Or, And that's why it's probably best just to take the ongoing percentage of the royalties or the or the profit if, if one spouse is actually running a business and you and you take that over or continue in that. It's the same with valuing the business. If one spouse is going to continue on the business, do you make a lump sum or a percentage of profit over the years? Yeah. But with patents, it can be very difficult if there's not a product being out there. What's the likelihood of it happening there? Then you get into things that are a lot more speculative and probably a court would say you get a percentage of you know, of profit going forward, but we're not going to force a lump sum payment on something that's completely ambiguous at this point. And speculative. So it's interesting because other assets don't have an expiration date, whereas a patent does. Correct. So the patents are good for 20 years from the day you file your patent application. Yeah. So typically it'll take two to three years and oftentimes up to five years and even much longer for biotech patents to actually get your patent from the day you file the patent so application. So you've already lost five years. Um, there are some mechanisms to get some time on the back end, especially for the biotech, the pharmaceuticals, but correct. So if it takes you three years, now you have 17 years where you can actually enforce it. Yeah. You have no rights before the patent issues. Yeah. You can't get any damages or anything for before then. And this was to, the U.S. came into compliance where, or with the rest of the world sometime back because it used to be that you got 17 years from the day it issued, no matter how long it took to yeah. get out of the patent office. But they said, no, uh, it was primarily because of one, in, one inventor named Jerome Lemelson that gamed the system and was able to file patent applications back in the 30s and 40s and 50s and not have them come out of the patent office until the 80s and then still ahead 17 years on them and then went after things like barcoding, which he clearly didn't invent, but he made hundreds of millions of dollars. And that was a, a driver for the US saying, all right, we're gonna stop this and we're gonna go to the 20 years from the day you file. Oh, okay. Doesn't seem fair. That's probably getting a little too deep in no, the weeds. No, but... no, I think that was a good explanation. <laughs> that helped me. Interesting topic. You know, it doesn't come up all that often, intellectual property, that is, in the context of a divorce, but it has come up. I actually hired, before I knew you, a patent attorney in a case I had maybe five years ago where I just wanted to make sure the husband didn't own, I, know, I knew he was an inventor, but he also worked for a lot of companies, and I didn't know whether he owned them and where the company owned them, and so we did a search. How does one do a patent search? There's uh, several ways. People usually do electronic searches through various databases, yeah. patent office database, and there's publications and foreign patent offices, et cetera. And usually in, uh, the patent attorneys themselves don't do it because our billing rates are too high. Uh, and it is kind of an art more than a science. And so there's companies that that's all they do. And they're very good at it. And they're much less expensive than patent attorneys yeah. because it's a waste of time or, or a waste of money to pay a patent attorney to do that because you're not really doing patent law at that point. You're doing searching. Yeah. And so pay someone to, that's a searcher to do the searching. Yeah. I so, wish I had known that five years ago. <laughs> so, and, these, and these search firms are, are very good. And a lot of times they're former patent examiners and they're used to doing this. And so you, you give them a description of what you're looking for or if you actually already have a patent or something, you just turn that over to them and say, here, go out and 
and see what is there. And there's different kinds of searches. Are you trying to see if your idea yeah. has already been done or you have an existing patent to see if, if somebody actually did it that the patent office missed and they should not have gotten their patent, et cetera. But the, you hire a search firm, they take care of it usually in a couple of weeks and then you look at what they came up with. Yeah. So what happens when the patent expires? Then it's, it then? then it's dedicated to the public. Whatever information was in there, that's the bargain that is a patent because the government says what we're going to do is it's a trade-off. If you are willing to disclose this publicly, we are willing to back it up for you, meaning that you can use the courts to enforce it. You get a monopoly for that Protected amount of time yeah. that expires at 20 years. But the trade-off is at the end of that 20-year period, now it's dedicated to the public. So you have a, a limited time window to monetize it using the government to back you up. Of course, then, like I said, the small inventors, unfortunately, uh, oftentimes can't afford it. Yeah. And so if because patent litigation is so expensive, you can't go to somebody to do a litigation on contingent, meaning that they'll take a percentage of the recovery unless there's probably $10 million of damages at stake. stake yeah, uh, damages are hard to prove too. Right, so that's why uh, some of these other companies arose, but again, they, they still don't like to do it unless there's probably $10 million of damages. Yeah. yeah. All right. Very interesting topic. Anything else you'd like to tell us, Shane, about something you know a lot about um, intellectual property? Yeah. Well, I think as far as your audience for the divorce, that's probably uh, all I have to say for now. I mean, the, I could talk on and on about patents because being a being a nerd engineer with a master's degree in electrical engineering and the law degree, I, uh -huh. I find the topic fascinating uh -huh. and I could talk forever, but your listeners probably wouldn't want to hear any of that. Well, I hopefully have an inventor out there listening. Well, thank you, Jane. It's been a really delight talking to you and having you here at uh, Inside Divorce. Thank you very much. If you'd like more information about the topics covered in our podcast, please contact us at Grossman & Associates. You'll find a competent and experienced team of compassionate, responsive, and innovative legal professionals. Email me at hindell at grossmanltd.com. My first name is spelled H-I-N-D-E-L-L. -L, or call us at 617-969-0069. Thank you for listening.